So welcome, everyone. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction.org. Today is April 2nd, 2010. I'm really excited to include in our discussion today Dr. Mark Corson and Maggie Orr, who is the um, nurse coordinator, and both are at Tufts Learning Hospital for Children in Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, Mark. Hi, Maggie. Hello. So, so glad to have you here with us today to share a little bit about your experience of how to be a great advocate. As I was mentioning before you jumped on the call, you know, it's not really a choice for those of us who have children or who are caring for ourselves or for a family member who have mitochondrial disease. We, we are put in a position of having to be an advocate for ourselves or our family member um, automatically. And, and it's, we don't give any training on how to do that. And, and sometimes I think that um, it's a difficult process and it feels like the system is working against us and not for us. So we're really excited to hear a little bit from you guys on your suggestions on how we can make that path a little easier or things that we can keep in mind in order to become the kind of advocate that really is able to get the team on board or um, get the results and the care and um, less frustrations in the process. Thank you. Um, I just, just to kind of introduce, I think the way um, Maggie and I are going to tackle this is um, giving three general situations. Um, one is a new, um, the situation of being a newly diagnosed patient or you know, having a, a child who is newly diagnosed. Um, two, um, a patient or family who is overwhelmed by medical issues and challenged by the, the the services by the system, and three, the advocate who um, is overly assertive. Um, and we're going to sort of give our perspectives based on our experience of what we have found that you know works uh, doesn't work. And um, but um, so th this is more of what we've seen. Um, Anyway, so um, let's begin. Maggie, do you want to introduce the first one? Yes, and um, Christy, thank you so much for inviting us to participate. Of course, thank you for joining us. Um, and, yeah, as Mark mentioned, um, one is when a, a patient, an adult or a child, is first diagnosed, um, which is obviously a very stressful time, although I think for some families or patients there can be some relief in finally having a name for what is wrong. Um, and I think sort of it can be helpful to think of that as starting a journey rather than running a sprint. Um, and so to sort of the start and set the stage, it's helpful to think about this first and just taking care of yourself. Um, and that's kind of basic mom's advice, like, you know, prioritizing rest, you know, stay adequately nourished, hydrate yourself, um, try to surround yourself as much as you can with positive and nurturing people. Exercise, um, if you can possibly make time for that. Try to laugh every day if you can. Take a deep breath. Um, and I think realizing that this is a journey that's going to be going on, um, you know, it's, it's not the next couple months. This could be going on for, you know, a lifetime. So you want to really care for yourself. Um, the second part um, to the newly diagnosed patient is um, focusing on what to do because, here you are uh, with a new diagnosis, and the more you read and the more you hear about it, um, it truly is kind of overwhelming, like, where do you begin? And I guess what's, um, I think the most um, 
you probably know, having walked into the appointment, um, in which the, the, the diagnosis has been discussed, you know what symptoms you or your child has had, and um, the priority should be around, I think the first priority should be around what you're going in with. Um, yes, there are going to be other things to think about, but you, you have to start somewhere, start with the problems at hand. Um, what I think important to do is also try to separate um, what's emergent from non-emergent rather than uh, figure that all symptoms and all potential symptoms that are associated with mitochondrial disease are all to be um, taken on at the same time is only to drown yourself. So um, try to, when, when you're looking at each individual issue, try to get a sense of what is, like, you know, what is important now versus what is important later. Some of the things that will help you decide that, I think, are, you know, is it a dangerous symptom uh, versus a non-dangerous one? Um, are, is the particular symptom or the needs associated with the issue, is it very time-limited? So something has to happen pretty soon, say an upcoming surgery is happening, and, you know, you have to, you might have to implement some uh, plan for, IV fluids or follow-up or, you know, preparation. So that's, uh, um, or if, you know, another thing that sort of raises an issue to to the uh, upward is if you have an ongoing issue that hasn't been addressed uh, despite repeated attempts, obviously it's going to move up in priority as well. But, um, but again, immersion versus, or urgent versus non-urgent, you want to only set a, a limited number of goals per day or per week, and if you can, but sometimes easier is um, is to link those goals or link those issues together with already scheduled appointments. So, you know, I have to think about seizures, um, but rather than ask my neurologist when I have an upcoming appointment in two weeks, just put, you know, put the two together if you can, and that sort of reduces the number of individual things you have to think about by, by, by linking it to something else. Mm. And, you know, I think it's also helpful to think um, in terms of educating yourself um, and tapping into the resources that are available from MitoAction and, and certainly other organizations and lots of websites. But um, you don't have to learn everything all at once, and you can also set some limits on that. You know, like you, you don't have to learn everything there is to know, um, and you can decide that for now this is what I want to focus on and just bite off a little piece. You know, um, you don't have to seek out the treatments right away, typically, and your mitochondrial care team is, is definitely here to help you. So, um, you know, ask questions. You don't have to spend hours and hours on the web, you know, from, from the get-go. Um, and I will be emailing Christy a list of sort of a short annotated list of websites that you might find helpful, and certainly the MitoAction website has lots of other um, web resources that might be useful. But you know, try to set limits on your computer time if you can. Um, I, I think sometimes when people are initially diagnosed, um, there's a tendency, and a very natural, understandable tendency, to spend hours and hours on the web researching. And because, of course, everyone, you know, we all want to better understand what's going on. Um, but I think it's important also to try to keep some balance and connect, make time if you can to connect with other people offline. Um, so that you don't get totally overwhelmed with all this new information. Um, 
the, the second scenario, if the first scenario was the newly diagnosed patient, and that's overwhelming, I think once you get into the thick of it, then you might find yourself in this type of scenario, which is um, the scenario of a, um, you, you have more awareness of mitochondrial disease, of what's going on with you or your child, um, and it's even more overwhelming. And, um, and there's every reason to be overwhelmed. It would be, I think, unnatural if you weren't overwhelmed because, you know, mitochondrial disease by nature is, you know, involves multiple systems. It's complex. Um, there's so much that is not known. I mean, we know more than we did 20 years ago, but, uh, but because this field is advancing so rapidly, we, we probably, we know, well, we certainly don't know more than we know. Um, so there's some, there aren't answers to many of the questions we have, and that's frustrating. Um, of course, the system, there, there are many providers involved who don't always talk uh, or agree with each other, and, you know, we're stuck in the middle, or you're stuck in the middle, uh, just because, you know, something makes sense in terms of health care, um, um, or I'm sorry, good health care, or what happens in health care does not equal common sense. So um, what should happen and what does happen are very different things. And, and as you know, at multiple levels, um, you know, things go wrong. <clears throat> so there's every reason to be um, overwhelmed. In terms of, in that kind of scenario, again, as Maggie said before, you know, remember this is a journey. Um, and if you don't take care of yourself to some degree, um, then you're not going to be able to take care. If you can't take care of yourself personally, then you're not going to be able to take care of your child or your mitochondrial needs. And um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the book, The House of God, which was a spoof on internship um, written back in the 1970s. But there were rules in The House of God, uh, which The House of God representing a hospital. And, and one of the rules was, um, again, geared towards doctors, the first pulse you take at a cardiac arrest should be your own. In other words, you have to, in the midst of stress, you have to be aware of what you, your own, um, what, what you are doing, what things are going on with you. And so what Maggie was saying before about, you know, take time to rest, take time out. Um, you just can't, you can't go all out all the time. That's a recipe for burnout, and eventually you're going to, um, whether you like it or not, um, you're not going to be able to, to, to serve yourself or your child uh, the way you need to. Um, you know, that kind of go-all-out mode is really only suitable for crises. Now, if you have crisis after crisis, um, you know, it becomes a problem. But even then, you have to find time out. Uh, you know, the operative word for, um, for mitochondrial disease, whether you're the patient or the, or the caregiver, is pacing yourself. So... Um, so that's, that's, that's critically important. Um, again, um, you know, once, once you get into the habit, and I think it's difficult at first, but once you get in the habit of prioritizing, um, it also reduces the burden because you don't have to deal with everything all at once, all at the same time. So um, that's, that's, a big, that's a big deal. And, and kind of I think going along with that is the, the realization that there are, in fact, very few decisions that actually have to be made quickly. Um, in the majority of the time, you really take some time, think things through, seek out information, um, and, and new information usually doesn't have to be looked at immediately. 
you know, if, if some long-awaited mail arrives, like a school letter or a clinic note or some other communication that might be stressful, you try to relax, try to get comfortable before, you know, you go ahead and open it and read it. You know, I think um, reading mail at the mailbox really does only increase stress. And, and most of the time you have some time to kind of um, settle yourself, take a few deep breaths. Um, and, you know, a, another issue I think is, is in a, a medical office setting, you know, in your typical clinic, there's usually a whole team of people that are there to help you. Um, and it can be really helpful to ask whom to contact for various kinds of issues. Um, and then try to address your communication to the person who's best able to help you out. Like, you know, if, if it's something like an appointment, if you didn't get your clinic note in a timely fashion, you know, that's something that, that you can ask the administrative staff. Um, so those, that's really the first, um, the first group you should go to. Uh, if you have a question about care coordination, if it's a really non-emergent kind of medical issue, call the nurse, um, who very often will have a direct line that you can just call and ask her. Um, and if it's truly an urgent medical issue, then call the physician. Um, but, you know, I think it can be really helpful in terms of uh, maximizing your resources is to um, really direct yourself that way. So you're, you really don't have to call the doctor if something isn't an urgent issue, and you don't have to call the nurse for an administrative task. Um, and that kind of lets everybody do their job. And um, you also will get the help you need in a much more timely kind of fashion. Um, I think it, it's also it's helpful to talk to people you trust and, and um, try to seek out support. And it's sort of similar to what we were saying earlier about surrounding yourself with positive and nurturing people as best you can. You know, there's, um, as we know, there's so many unknowns in um, about mitochondrial disease and there are always going to be people that have tried something maybe you haven't tried or um, are taking another tack or going to a different clinic or whatever. And, you know, that's okay. People can make all kinds of, of different decisions. And, um, you know, just once you've decided which, what your course of action is, try to seek support around that and, and surround yourself with those, with those folks. And, um, you know, if there are negative people in your life that drag you down, try to minimize contact with them if you can. Um, so the third of the uh, three scenarios, um, the newly diagnosed patient, the, uh, the overwhelm um, situation, the situation of being overwhelmed um, within mitochondrial disease. And then the third is the overly assertive advocate. And um, there is, you know, absolutely, as, as Christy um, spoke about and, and Maggie alluded to, you have to be assertive. I mean, this is... Um, you know, physicians or providers don't talk enough to each other. They don't agree with each other. The, you know, how they respond to each other is slow. Uh, people don't do what they say they'll do, or they don't do it in a, in, a, in a timely fashion, or what you regard as a timely fashion. And then when you do get through, um, sometimes your attempts are blocked or denied, say, by insurance. So, you know, assertive is, is necessary. And I would venture to say those families uh, that are assertive, um, their care ends up um, better than you know, those people who are not assertive, who hope that, you know, by pure compassion, 
or by pure um, attention that, you know, they'll get what they need. Um, but that's, I think, where there's so few clinicians and so few clinics, um, you know, I think all the clinics are overwhelmed. So uh, being assertive is, uh, is necessary. But we have seen situations where, um, where patients, because, because they're frustrated, um, they end up being, the, they, the, the assertive nature sort of gets into the abusive range. And, um, and I think some of that um, is probably misdirected by, by frustration that gets misdirected either at the, at the doctor, at the nurse, at the secretary in the clinic. Um, and you want to be very careful about that, uh, even though it's understandable and even though the people who are experienced to work in this area kind of know that that's probably where it's coming from. Um, you know, people can only take so much, and you don't want to end up um, um, burning bridges when those are the very people who need to be helping you. So just just kind of be aware of that. Um, the other thing is, um, in terms of um, the sort of advocate, we've had patients um, who have brought to um, their clinicians, you know, reams of articles um, to read or um, as, as many of you may know, um, our former nurse practitioner, Margaret Clem, and I uh, drafted a clinician's guide uh, for managing symptoms of mitochondrial disease. And we made a conscious decision not to have it published in a medical journal where we were afraid it would not get read by physicians, but had it published um, on uh, the MitoAction website so that patients would be able to download it and then um, they would do a better job at making sure their clinicians um, got it. Um, but we've had situations where the um, their doctors, their primary care providers, are provided with the entire uh, booklet, which is again overwhelming. Um, uh, when, when there's when every physician or every nurse has you know a pile on their desk of you know that's three or four inches thick of things to do and things to read, um, you want what you want to try to do is. Uh, use, provide information in a wise way. Um, don't provide the whole thing, but provide, say, say sections, and, and, and the clinician's guide was written in sections, provide sections um, to one who needs it, whoever needs it, and at the right time. So you don't have to provide, let's say, the section about things to think about when a procedure is going to happen. You don't have to provide that at the beginning. Wait till a procedure is being discussed and then prevent that. Uh, presented at that time. Um, another point um, for advocacy is, um, unfortunately, and, and we've touched on this before on previous um, teleconferences, uh, the issue about um, you know drawing drawing negative attention to yourself as an advocate. So um, you know mitochondrial disease. The nature of it being multi-system, being multiple providers involved, being uh, having uh, providers at different hospitals, um, communication not being good, um, the symptoms being variable. Um, what ends up happening is that the patient or the parent, um, most often the mother, uh, becomes the, um, the central source of all information. And that uh, is a dangerous place for you to be. Because what, is, what some physicians who are not familiar with mitochondrial disease, or even and some are, um, 
start to uh, put you under um, uh, or, or start to suspect, like, why why am I not getting this information from the doctor, but I'm only getting it from, you know, you the patient or you the parent? Um, you know, maybe you, you misunderstood. Are you, are you, um, you know, um, emphasizing or, um, emphasizing certain aspects of, of an opinion more than others? Um, uh, why are you so knowledgeable? Um, you know, there's a negative connotation to this as well. And unfortunately, there are cases where um, patients or our parents have fabricated information. In, uh, and us as providers, we have a great deal of difficulty differentiating the person who, the person who um, really just is an informed resource, and they know their kid best, and they um, accurately put all the doctor's opinions. You know, uh, they have those accurately um, uh, stated in their mind. We we have a difficult. We have difficulty differentiating that from, say, the parent who has difficulty prioritizing what the issues are, and every issue with their child is at the same level of severity, versus the very, the rare, the very rare situation where some parents actually fabricate these symptoms. Um, you know, the so-called Munchausen by proxy syndrome, and and so um, the the overly assertive advocate probably runs into those situations more often, but it need not be that way. We've had, we've had, um, we've made recommendations in certain cases to have the uh, parent or the patient carry a journal with them to all appointments and the base, the final conclusions or impressions of the doctor at each appointment gets written down in this journal and that journal gets brought from appointment to appointment so that if anyone has any concerns about what you're saying, they can look at the journal, and it takes you out of the center of information. And that can uh, be protective. The other thing is um, that, um, um, what's it, I, I was making a point. You were doing very well, too. <laughs> well, the other point is documenting that, um, you know, mitochondrial disease has variable symptoms. So some days it's worse, some you know, there are good days, there are bad days, and, um, but again, it's hard to say, well, this mother says that child, you know, is, is um, you know, has difficulty keeping up um, or gets more fatigued, and that, so does that mother. But are everybody's impressions, uh, does everybody weigh things in the same way and assess things in the same way? It's very useful to get independent observations. And it doesn't, you know, because a doctor only sees a child uh, or a patient you know, for half an hour or, or an hour. They may not see anything during that half an hour or an hour. Um, and uh, as a way of protecting yourself, if you have a teacher uh, who sees a child on a regular basis, a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, a, um, a sports group leader who sees a lot of kids on a day-to-day -day basis, and if they say, you know what, this kid really is, 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 really is different from the rest, he or she clearly can't keep up. That's a very, even though that person may not be a doctor, that's a very valid observation. And again, can deflect some of the suspicion that, um, that um, you know, this disease seems to attract. Um, the, other, the other point is, um, is as an advocate, 
um, you want to, um, obviously, sometimes you know what needs to be done. And the more you push, the more resistance you might find. So, um, again, using a popular culture reference, for those of you who might have seen my big fat Greek wedding, when um, the character Tula, the daughter, was working in a restaurant, but what she wants to do is work as a travel agent, but everyone was afraid that, the fa that Tula's father wouldn't agree to it. So the Tula's mother and Tula's aunt decided if they put it across so that the father uh, uh, was pulled along to believe that it was his idea that she transferred from being a, a waitress to a travel agent, then this would happen. And so they very cleverly, in a very funny way, made it seem like it was his idea. And what I would say is, um, what, if, you, if you have a good idea of what needs to be done, then what you want to try to do is, rather than railroad, you know, a provider into, you know, this must be done, I know I can't just do it type of attitude, go with, um, go do it in a more slow way, kind of, um, you know, have them, you know, talk about the different options, why certain options might not be good and certain options might be better, and so that they arrive at the conclusion that, that you've arrived at. And that way, you'll get a lot more buy-in um, to what uh, should happen for your child. Which, which also, I think, leads right into um, thinking always in terms of developing relationships. And, and I think that's helpful with um, people in the school community. It's certainly helpful in, in medicine um, and in your own local community to try to nurture relationships and be positive. Um, so that even, for example, in a school setting, while you know um, your child's legal rights, remember that the policy is always mediated by people. And um, as Martha's just mentioning, you know, if you can sort of work very collaboratively in such a way that it, that it feels to everyone like a team decision, um, that's always to everyone's benefit, you know, because these are relationships um, ideally that, you, that will be going on for, for a number of years and you want to try to nurture them. Um, and, and when possible, try to sandwich a request between positive statements, you know, so that, because, you know, I, I think it's easy for people, um, you know, whether they're working in a school setting with kids with disabilities or in a, in a clinic that can feel overburdened sometimes, um, you know, it's, these folks are all working really hard and I think probably um, honestly, they're doing their best. So I think it's, it's helpful to try to um, be positive as much as you can. Of course, it's not always possible, and it certainly can feel challenging, but I think it is really helpful. So that's sort of our take on three different scenarios. I think at this point, um, Christy, this might be a good time to start taking questions. All right, super. That's great. And I have um, a couple questions as well. So let me um, open up all the lines, and what we'll do is we'll just um, allow folks to take questions questions, we'll just take turns and you can um, ask your question and if relevant, um, you can just tell us, you know, um, where you're calling from and whether you're an adult patient or caring for a child with the disease and then ask the question and we'll do our best to um, answer those and, and answer them in a way that makes them helpful for everyone to apply to their situation as well. So, you're here a couple of beats, let me open up the lines. All right, so um, everyone should be able to take turns asking questions now. So um, who has the first question? Hello? Yeah, go ahead. 
I'm Karen. I'm from uh, Clifton Heights, PA. Uh, my son, Kevin, is 23, and uh, he was just diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease. And my question is, a lot of doctors don't know much about it. Um, is there anything we can do as parents to inform them? Um, well, yes, that there is. I'm also a nurse, too, oh. but um, I just became a nurse. I just graduated in July, so Congratulations. I knew that. Thank you. Um, that, that's, a, that's a huge problem, um, is that, um, you know, that there are so few people who are educated. In fact, um, we regularly get asked, well, and when we were first somebody, to, uh, when we were for uh, somebody to a physician, or um, you know, we're talking about um, you know patients are talking about getting a new primary care provider, and they'll say, well, that, you know, do they know about mitochondrial disease? And the truth is, um, nobody knows about mitochondrial disease, so you can't set that as a criteria uh, as a criterion for selecting a physician. What you're looking for, though, are you're looking for physicians who um, you know don't speak before they think. Who um, don't mind complex cases, and that's hard to find. Oh, absolutely, but there are like um, you know, especially ones that are associated with academic medical centers, as opposed I to. We had to go to Maryland to, to actually see a doctor because there's so few in the in the country. There's like in Columbia, there's a I think it's Columbia or is it Cleveland Clinic, and oh. then there was John Hopkins. Oh no no, but we're not talking about mitochondrial physicians. What we're talking about is. Your, your, you or your child's, you know, primary pediatrician or right. internist. He had no idea that was going on. And, and there aren't, there sort of, there aren't any. But so I, I think the criteria you need to be is if you're looking for a physician, um, you're, you're looking for a physician who um, is, is thoughtful, um, someone who will um, is not afraid of complex diseases. And there are physicians like that. If you go to, if you speak to the the general pediatric or general internal medicine practices as an academic, like a teaching hospital, and ask them, can you make a recommendation uh, for a physician that does not mind complex cases? There will be. There are people like that. And in fact, when you see those, when you see that doctor, you should, you know, make that a question up front. Um, you know, say, you know, this is what I need from you. Uh, I need, you know, I need you to be able to learn about this disease. I need you to be able to talk to, you know, other uh, mitochondrial experts to, to to run things by. Can you do that? And some doctors will say, no, I can't. I, uh, my practice is too big. Sorry, next person, just keep going. Oh, so, um, and, and, um, uh, and if you do that, um, you, you, you will find somebody who is, um, more receptive, and probably that's about the the best you can do. Once you have something mm -hmm. receptive, then feed information gradually, and that's where the clinician's guide can be helpful. Oh, and where do I find this clinician's guide? It's on mitoaction.org backslash guide, G-U-I-D, and you'll you'll go right to it. And like Dr. Corson said, I, the the reason that it's not a a publication that you can order or buy is because um, we really felt that it was going to be best used in pieces. So it's always there. It's, it's free to use, and it's significantly um, comprehensive and helpful. And you can use pieces so that if if your appointment is with your primary doctor and your overwhelming symptom that is causing the greatest change in your ability to have a good quality of life is um, you know, GI issues, then you can take that section 
um, or if your child is going to have a minor surgery for their adenoids taken out or, or something like that, then you can use the sections about surgery. Or if you're an adult patient and you, you know, are wanting to discuss with your doctor what happens when you're getting fevers and you get, you know, really knocked off of your regular routine for a couple weeks after those episodes, then take those sections. But that's important because when you um, when you take the whole thing, we can pretty much promise you that no one is going to read it. And <laughs> so, and then, then you have not only, you know, um, wasted that much paper, but you've also potentially created a, a very minor wedge, but that makes the physician feel like, well, they're just dumping this information on me and I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do what I think is right. And so, and they're not even going to use it as a reputable resource, and that's that's really not what your goal is. So it's, it's tough because I think um, you're in a position then of having to make some really good decisions about what is the priority. And, and that was something Dr. Corsman and Maggie, I wondered if you would speak just a little bit on. Is one thing that I find is um, is a real challenge for many folks, parents and adult patients, is that. Um, as the person who is caring for a child or caring for yourself, you feel like you only get that opportunity to see those specialists or those doctors infrequently. And so it's like you save up, you know, a lot of a lot of goodies to take to that doctor. But then when you get there, really, what realistically, there's not enough time to go over all of those um, items. So how do you prioritize? What do you recommend? Well, um, sometimes what can help is um, when there are a lot of issues to talk about because, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of any individual visit is, um, is taking a history. Um, sometimes, some clinics, um, you know, if you give them a summary up front, um, sometimes, like sometime before the visit, not just before, uh, and not even the day before, but if you give it to them several days before, so that they may have a chance, so that the physician or the nurse or the nurse practitioner or whoever has a chance to review it, and then they can help, that will cut down some of the history time. It will give a heads up on, you know, what the issues um, uh, are to be addressed, and, um, and it sort of gives them a quick update in print already um, of, you know, what has happened over the last, you know, several months. And some clinics will, and you know, will appreciate that, and would actually will help to focus um, the visit somewhat. Now, if the if that um, summary you know goes on for five or six pages, then it becomes again burdensome, uh, like too burdensome, and overwhelming in itself. Um, so you want to keep it uh, concise, you know, key things, uh, leave some issues for the discussion, but um, but certainly even even the topics. Um, to be discussed, you're prioritizing the topics uh, these are what the big issues are um, will help focus the discussion. If the clinic is not open to you providing that kind of written information in advance, if, if you can even jot down the history before you come in so that, your hist so that the, um, the information you have is as organized as possible. Yeah. That helps to keep the um, visit more um, in a more timely fashion. I, I also think it can be helpful to direct your questions or your issues to the appropriate specialist. Um, you know, if, if I know what sometimes happens in our clinic is that um, because patients have mitochondrial disease, 
if they have an issue that's if the GI issue that's associated with mitochondrial disease, they will often call us first. Um, and and you know that's well and good, but really, if it's a GI issue, that needs to go to the gastroenterologist. Or if it's a neuro issue, it needs to go to the neurologist. And that doesn't mean that we can't be kept in the loop, but um, really, the appropriate specialist should deal with. Um, Excuse me, I'm another thing. Uh, now, if a neurologist is ordering episodes, like if they're not aware of the mitochondrial disease, and a lot of neurologists are not aware of it, like they're trying to drug or seizures that should not be given. And you don't want to tell a doctor what should and shouldn't be done. So, well, how do you handle that? Well, it's a good point. You know, they're. they're um, yeah. There, there is some controversy about it. Not that, uh, you know, Depakote doesn't impact um, the mitochondrion, but, um, you know, that sometimes Depakote is the best drug for a particular, uh, for a particular symptom. And um, so there are very few drugs that are contraindicated in mitochondrial disease. Um, you know, I, we have lots of patients with mitochondrial disease who are taking Depakote and quite safely. Um, I simply wouldn't recommend it, you know, for a prolonged period of time. Um, but sometimes uh, in the acute situation, it's, it, it's, that's the one that one needs. But right. um, I think, you know, bringing, um, if you know it's going to be an issue or if it, at, if it becomes an issue, then it's, um, you know, it's worth bringing up the point and um, either suggesting, um, either providing information, say, from the clinician's guide as an example, um, and there are some articles, you know, there are other articles about various issues out there. Um, or um, suggesting that that clinician give the mitochondrial doctor that follows you a call. Or, you know, if you're really stuck in a situation and there's real concern about safety, you know, asking the, asking the clinic office, uh, the mitochondrial clinic office to give that doctor a call and just, you know, to give them a heads up. But it, it does get sticky. It does, yeah. It's very hard. It's a fine line. And yeah. Walk and, um, you know, the, the main goal is just to keep him healthy and seizure-free. But I don't want to, like, ruin another thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm keeping his seizures under control, but I don't know what it's doing to his other, you know, disease process. It's a great question, Karen. So let's move on and have another opportunity right. for a question. I have to go because I'm at work. Thank you very much. Okay. I appreciate all the info. Thank you. Good luck to everybody. God bless. All right, so who has another question they'd like to ask? Hi, um, I have a question about um, how, I mean, how as a parent can we get um, all the specialists to communicate better? Because, like, well, my doctor has a GI doctor and a neurologist and then a metabolic doctor, and then she has a special pediatrician. And getting them to communicate seems like it's my job to say, oh, you know, there's these lab tests and those lab tests. Nobody has a clue of what's going on, and they're all in the same building. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm luckily, uh, I, I love my children's hospital, so I go to where all the, all the doctors are at the same place, and it's like they don't talk to each other. It's very frustrating for me as a parent, so, I mean, like, they have access to children's homes. I would think they'd have access to the same medical records. They're all on the computer at the same hospital, so it's like, how do I get them to talk to each other so that I can make sure that she's getting the best treatment? Um... You know, uh, uh, you know, I think very hard. I think, I think it's very hard to do if they're going to do that. You figure they would do it if, if there is an electronic medical record within the hospital. Then you know that makes it easy. I guess um, 
Um, I guess what I might suggest is as issues, you know, come up during your clinic visit, then, you know, make a point of um, having them check the record right there. Uh, if you say, you know, Dr. Smith says that, um, uh, made mention of this, um, especially if you have copies in, you know, you know, um, you know, copies of the clinic letters yourself. Some people keep their own copies of medical records, and that's, you know, not a bad idea for as a reference. Um, but direct them uh, to that, um, or, again, having a journal with you of uh, if your hospital does not have an electronic medical record, or if you have um, doctors in several different hospitals where there isn't easy, there, uh, the records are not shared easily, then having a journal then you can actually show, well, this is what Dr. So-and-so said. But, you know, the problem is, you know, if if the doctor holds fast to his or her opinion, um, you would like that, you know, the doctors to talk, and sometimes that doesn't that doesn't happen. Yes, because what I'm finding is that a treatment, especially when it comes to her seizures, because they're still not controlled with two seizure medicines, that her pediatrician wants one increased, and the neurologist is all, no, 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 we can't do that. And oh, so then I have doctors who are stepping on each other's toes and they're making each other upset because they're disagreeing about treatment for my daughter. Right. So if I could jump in, one one suggestion, and it may not be available in your area, but um, the coordinated care team or the palliative care team can sometimes help take you out of being the middleman. And and whenever you're the middleman, I mean, um, you you have many roles to play, and one of those is to be the mom and to be taking care of yourself so that you can continue to take good care of your child. And so the additional stress of having to be the um, the primary, the care coordinator for, between all these doctors mm-hmm. is, is in some ways, yes, it falls to you, and you are probably the keeper of some of the best information. But on the other hand, you're not going to work in the medical system mm-hmm. every day. You're not privy to the email addresses and meetings and passing someone in the hall to be able to make that communication happen, nor should you really be expected to. And so the coordinated care team at several hospitals exists just to do that, as does the, um, the palliative care and social work team sometimes will help also help you to prioritize and identify that that's a need and the way that it's impacting your quality of life and to either give you suggestions or help create team meetings. I mean, Dr. Corson and Maggie, would you agree that that's a, another resource? Yes, absolutely, in the, in the hospitals where it's available. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think we have that at, at, our, at our children's hospital here, so... I have to look into it. I, I think we do have that. You know, sometimes I think families feel that palliative care is something that they go to just when they are thinking that their um, their child or themselves as an adult patient is at the end of life. And that's really not the definition of palliative care. It's more about quality of life um, for a disease that is going to really not have um, a, a cure or a treatment which mitochondrial disease qualifies for. So you may be in palliative care for, you know, 15 years, and and that team can really get to know you and then is available for you when things are complex and then mm-hmm. knows of you when you're not really in a situation where you need them as much, but that you're still um, one of their patients. And, and, again, it may not be available in all hospitals, but it is a a growing trend and um, a place that I would go because anytime you can find a person who is other than you 
who can help you to be that champion, I think you're in a better position. Um, what if you're sick? Then who's, and you're the only person who knows what to do for your child. Then, then what's going to happen? I mean, really, you want to think of those things so that you you aren't the only person who is aware. And the metabolic specialist shouldn't be your next person in line who's the only person aware of what's going on. There should yeah. be there should be people who see you regularly and who's who have more time and opportunity to be um, to be playing, sharing that role of advocate with you. Um, one one point I might also make is it's it's harder the outpatient. Um, um, setting, but in the inpatient setting, especially if a number of specialists are seeing your, you or your child in a hospital, um, you know, it's, it's actually, and I've seen this happen, it happens probably more often than it doesn't happen, when each service offers its own recommendations, and sometimes the different services in the hospital offer recommendations that are, uh, uh, that oppose, you know, one opposes the other. And so what is the attending service, the one who actually admitted you to their service, um, what, you know, they have to make a decision. Well, who do they talk to? Do they agree with one service? Do they agree with another service? In those kinds of situations, what I usually do if I'm the attending physician, but what you can do as a parent or a patient is you can ask for a team meeting where the, the essential consultants are all brought together and basically they hammer it out in front of you in a conference. And that way, uh, a decision is made without being dumped on the attending service who may not be knowledgeable in that particular area. And worse, it's not dumped on you to kind of figure out who's, you know, what's the better plan. So that's something you can do, um, at least on the inpatient setting. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So, um, Dr. Corson, now it's right at 1 o'clock. Do we have time for one more question? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Super. All right. So, we'll take uh, another question. I do. Um, I'm calling from Georgia and uh, wanted to take, I've got a kind of a different sort of question for you, but I wanted to draw on your experiences if possible. Um, I have five children with mitochondrial myopathy as well as my husband, and our oldest is getting ready to look at colleges. She's a rising senior. And I'm just wondering if in your experiences if you have any recommendations for how to negotiate the college admissions process as far as when and what to discuss regarding health concerns and how they might affect um, her, even her college classes and that sort of thing. Um, I, I would get in touch with the Disability Services Office very first thing. Um, in fact, we've had some patients that um, contacted that office even while they were still in the application process to college because um, kids with um, or you know, people with disabilities have um, have legal rights in terms of the kinds of accommodations should be made to them at the college level. So that's just. Uh, do you have a particular way to or suggestion for how to describe the intermittent nature of the symptoms with Mito to a college, you know, in a succinct way? No, I, I think. Um, I mean, um, I think some of the, the current um, you know, articles about mitochondrial disease really uh, emphasize the variability. Um, but what you may want to do is when you're talking about intermittent symptoms, try to give the school an idea when you're talking about intermittent or, uh, you know, how, how often is, is often. Are you talking about once a week? Are you talking about, you know, once, twice a year? Are you talking about a daily uh, thing? Um, the other thing is because uh, what you also don't want to do is sort of, 
gave the entire list of all potential mitochondrial symptoms because, again, completely overwhelming and they may not be appropriate for your child. So you really just want to tell them what they, you know, what your, 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 your or your child's active issues. Um, and again, prioritize it for them. Give them details about it. Um, the more they, the more they know, you know, the better they'll be able to help you. But again, you know, keep it prioritized. Keep it focused. I and I would say also for any of you who are um, concerned about school issues, there's just uh, so many um, really excellent, very tangible, practical resources that you can dig into on our website, and you can find them under the school and legal advocacy heading on the homepage. Um, in particular, there's some under the heading sample IEP and letters. There are a lot of great um, templates or checklists or, or explanations of how to explain some of those things that then you can use um, when you're trying to answer those questions or craft a letter and um, so forth to describe it. So I would encourage you to check that out if you haven't already. Um, all right, and do we have time for one more question? Okay. Okay, one more. This is our last one, so um, someone has one more question? I have a question. Go ahead. Um, I'm newly diagnosed, and I have uh, multiple physicians who've been working on my case for several years, and they're at different institutions. Some are even are different states. I have one specialist in particular who has a little bit of knowledge about mitochondrial disease, um, but just enough to not be up to date. So it's been kind of confusing both for me because I'm new to this. I'm trying to learn. So what do you recommend to when, a, when a physician who's basically this is not his field of specialty doesn't agree with the diagnosis, but yet due to his I guess uh, status, for lack of a better word, his reputation just in the world because of who he's affiliated with kind of trumps what any other more knowledgeable doctor says. Um, it, uh, I guess the only way I would, uh, I would approach that is, you know, having the physician, again, you don't want to be caught in the middle of that right. dialogue between, the, between two doctors. You, you'd want them... Um, to sort of, um, to sort of uh, duke it out is, is, is too forceful. Just, you know, to discuss it and come to some joint conclusion about um, how they're going to manage, you know, your care. Um, if you find somebody's truly obstructive, that's, that's, that's a problem. Um, and that's, that can, you know, one thing is to, you know, to have, to be skeptical but not, um, obstruct care. To obstruct care is, is, is another story. Um, and that um, that's not a helpful person to have on your team. But uh, the only way you have to counter it is uh, you're not making the argument but having the, the, the person who made the diagnosis or a mitochondrial physician make the um, take on that role. Okay. Thank you. Um, super. So, um, you know, I think that there are probably more questions and, and, you know, more opportunities to, to chat about this. And one way that we can do that is um, by 
we'll post the recording of this meeting online, and then you, I encourage you to post comments on the page where the recording and the summary is, and um, it'll give us an opportunity to continue the discussion, and I'll jump in there with some um, insight as well, because I feel like this is an area that really applies to everyone. And um, Dr. Corson and Maggie, I really appreciate that you take some of your time to share with us the experience, and it's, it's obvious that you, um, you know, you have so much experience with this, and you see clearly that it is a challenge for patients and that you want to help, and I think that that's most appreciated by everyone. So thank you so much for joining us and, and doing that with us today. Any closing thoughts or comments? Christy, could I ask one quick question? Because it's occurred to me during the, the answers. What is the function of the social worker department in the hospital? And can they be used by patients to intervene on behalf of patients? Maggie or Mark, do you have a quick moment to answer that question? I, I think that probably varies in different settings. Um, you know, in, in some settings, the social worker really deals more with sort of very concrete services. Um, I think on the, the palliative care teams, um, that's actually an excellent reason to get involved with palliative care. Um, because the social worker can help with um, support and um, for the family and, and also sort of with communication um, in the team. But, again, I think it varies hospital by hospital. Thank you. So, Mark and Maggie, any closing comments? Um, it's, unfortunately, it's a very difficult system out there. Um, and, you know, healthcare even with reform, is not going to make things easy. Um, so you have to have a lot of stamina for this. Um, so take care of yourselves. Um, and um, prepare yourself for a, a long uh, a journey, as Maggie, as Maggie said. Yeah, and, and, you know, I just want to say I'm, I'm really so impressed by by so many of the mitochondrial patients and families that we work with, you know, who really do an extraordinary job of yeah. advocating for themselves and for their kids and managing to hold their family life together in the middle of this really very stressful um, time. And it's, and it's a time, as we all know, that, that you know, it isn't something that goes away in, in six months or a year. You know, these really are long-term relationships. Um, so um, I, I wish everyone the best, and, and, and as if, if people can try to remain positive, you know, I, I think that's really the key. I know it's really hard, but that's just one of able. So, but thank you so much for having us on today. Thank you so much. And everyone, thank you so much. And enjoy the um, weekend. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again in our support calls that are on Fridays this month, as well as um, next month in May, we'll be inviting Abby Usen, who is a dietitian, um, to speak with us about nutrition for mitochondrial disease. And as always, feel free to email me if I can help you or you have questions, director at mitoaction.org. So thank you, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye okay, thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.